This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined as ever by David Hughes. Dave, how is things? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Josh. Uh, very good indeed. We are returning for the second part of our Q&A special. Um, last week we had so many questions come in that we didn't have time to get through them all. We tried, um, but we've still got a fair amount left. So this second episode, you know, international break and stuff, so there's no football happening anyway. We're going to get through your questions again. So those who didn't pop up last week, um, you should pop up this week. If not, apologies, something might have happened, but we better get started anyway, Dave, see where we end up. Um, so I'll, I'll let you go first, I think. Or should I go first? <laughs> um, yeah, you go first, because I'll, uh, I'll actually bring up my docu- documents and questions. Where yeah, I might, I might actually have more than you, so I'll go first. Okay, go on. So... First on my list, revisiting last week's questions, question from Paddy Cullen. So uh, I think he's a regular listener, actually. So uh, sorry, Paddy, you missed out last week by one. Um, but he says, results have dropped massively since Hendo left the midfield. We've seen the impact of bringing Fabinho back in there. Do you start both of them in midfield when they're both fit? Or do you have one as a centre-back and one as a six? Um, I think I'm inclined to lean towards them both in midfield just to get as close to the old Liverpool as we possibly can. The only issue with that maybe is I think Liverpool's four top midfielders really at the minute are Fabinho, Thiago, Genie and Hendel. And obviously Liverpool's system is 4-3-3 so you can only fit three of the four in. Um, so it's, it's, there's always going to be a question as to who do, you, who do you put on the bench basically out of those four. But I still think that because of what's happened this season, I think I'd play them both in midfield. And even though the two centre-backs are not ideal standard, let's say, in Phillips and, and Kabach, I think just to get a bit of consistency up until the end of the season, I think I'd just take the dip in quality just to have two centre-backs for the rest of the season because they, they don't appear particularly injury-prone. So I think I'd um, I think I'd go down that route. Yeah, Um I'm glad that you uh, you were thorough with your question, uh, your answer. Sorry, Josh, because give me a chance <laughs> to get me stuff up. <laughs> um, yeah, so Sampo uh, Lassie, then I think the pronunciation. Apologies if it isn't. Uh, but it's a good good question. Uh, given the similarities between the teams, which players uh, from Glasgow Rangers could fit into the Reds' team? Uh, and I thought. You know, the example provided is actually quite a good one. Uh, Glenn Kamara as an option maybe for for Genie. Uh, I like that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good shout. Uh, obviously, Kamara's twenty five, so he's younger than Genie. Uh, similar playing principles. You know, Rangers have predominantly played a four three three all season, and he's played kind of like a like a. You know, a, a number eight in that team. Uh, so they play the similar role. I think he's, he offers a little bit less from an attacking point of view. Uh, you know, 
we know why Naldum can kind of do that side of things when required to do so. Um, but yeah, I like that shout. I think that's a that's a good shout, and maybe you know it could be one to watch. We have to wait and see. The only thing I'm thinking is twenty five. You know, unless it was happening this year, would would it happen in a year or two? Probably not. Uh, there's also no guarantee that you kind of you know compete at this level because it, it's you know the Gerard and Rangers have done really well this year. That Scottish Premiership is, you know, inferior compared to the Premier League. So, yeah, I'm not sure if, if it's ever a move that would materialise, but, you know, still an interesting shout nonetheless. He's actually a player that I'm surprised hasn't came to England or been linked with England a little bit more, maybe. I think mm. lower in the table. Uh, teams like, you know, I don't know, maybe Crystal Palace level and, and teams like that in and around 10th and stuff. I think he's a... Uh, He'd be a bit of a bargain, to be honest. Job he'd do. Mm. Um, I agree, so I agree. I've got a question here. I think this is from the same lad, actually. I think he might have put forward three <laughs> for me. I, I probably should have answered them all at once, to be honest. Uh, so I think this is from Paddy Cullen again. And he says, <laughs> fully enough, th- this is kind of out of date now a-, a little bit, but I did answer it last week. So I'll just answer it anyway. He says, to win the Champions League, we need to beat three out of the seven remaining teams. What would be the ideal run? Uh, this He sent this in, obviously, before last week's draw, which happened on the Friday, I think. And I think it was fairly obvious for me. Porto, Dortmund, Real Madrid. Um, them, them, them three teams, for me, I think Liverpool can comfortably compete with. Certain other teams can cause Liverpool's Vulnerable defence in particular, some problems at the minute. Obviously, we ended up drawing Real Madrid. I'd like to go into detail about that, but I'm going to save that for when we face them because it's not too far away. Um, and he also asks, "This is this. I think this was his third question. What style of play does Steven Gerrard play at Rangers, and how does it differ to Klopp's?" Very similar. Um, I think he favours. Well, I know he favours four three to the over there. Very nice balance between attack and defence. Uh, lots of speed up front, mobility up front, fluidity and stuff, albeit he's got a bit more of a traditional striker in Morales compared to Firmino. Uh, full-backs contributing in attack and stuff. So, you know, I know you've looked at a little bit of Gerard Rangers, Dave, but I do think that it's been widely reported, to be honest, across the board, that Gerard almost seems to be mirroring a lot of what Klopp's doing at Liverpool, whether there's any in, in that. You know, any words behind the scenes, I'm not too sure, but both cases are very comparable. Like, yeah, you know, you know, you have to look at things, and there's plenty of them doing the rounds on Twitter. If you look at things like average formation, um, visualizations, you'll see that that there's a lot of similarities in the, in the four three three between the two sides. Uh, and I th- you know, I think a lot of it goes back to if you think about what Gerard was doing before he joined Rangers. Obviously, he's the under-18 coach at Liverpool. Liverpool, uh, as a club, fully aligned from the senior team down to the 23s, down to the 18s in terms of the principles they look to deploy. You know, and that that isn't just, you know, kind of, there will be some subtle adjustments, but a lot of the time, the, the, the formations stay the same. That's um, all with the end goal of obviously producing players um, who can step into the first team and make that transition as smooth as possible. So if you've been playing that the same role as, if, say, if you're, well, Curtis Jones, prime example, he's been playing the role that he's been playing 
in the senior side over the last twelve months for three years in the in the youth settle. Um, so going back to Gerard, if you think he's kind of implementing those philosophies, he then moves to to Rangers, um, and he he almost replicates it to to a bigger scale at at, at, at one of the biggest sides in Scotland and. And you can kind of, as I said, that's why you can kind of see the the similarities between the two. Uh, so when you when you're looking at Liverpool's first team, when you're looking at Rangers' first team, they do look a mirror of the of each other. Yeah. Next question, Dave. Yeah, I've got a uh, Gary Walmsley. Um, who, this is. I'll tell you what, Josh. I, I had a quick glance at this before. I was just making sure there was no uh, no curveballs in there before we <laughs> before we come on. And this was this one really did catch me attention have me thinking um so I'll, I'll read the question in full first it was is there any statistical analysis on how we could implement a back three with trent and robo giving more freedom to attack which is obviously their strength um it's obviously dependent on returns from injury uh gary i think this might be a typo uh i'm gonna give you the benefit of those here because he said Maybe Firmino as a third centre back with license to step <laughs> out and start attacks. Um, yeah, I know we're I know we're talking about maybe uh, relegating them out to start eleven, but I don't think that's his new position. Uh, so I, I assume maybe me Fabinho um, or Fabinho. Sorry, um, really, really interesting que- question actually because my initial response was to be like no. Uh, and I'll open the floor maybe for you as well, Josh, when, once I've said a little bit on it. But I don't actually think it's a bad idea because, you know, it suits teams who kind of dominate the ball, uh, which I think in the past Liverpool were kind of a team looking to go from back to front fairly quickly, you know, fairly direct with the passing. But I don't think they're obviously allowed to do that anymore because of how how deep teams sit in, uh, give them possession. It's It's often about, you know, good passing combinations to try and break sides down. That system in, in many ways does kind of benefit that. Um, and then if you think about the potential options with it, you're looking at, say if you did go with a 4-3-3, maybe you're looking at Van Dijk Gomez. You could put Fabinho in there as you, as you raised, but I think he's probably better as a as a centre-mid, isn't he? So maybe you'd either leave Trent in that back three um, with Fabinho offering that cover if he kind of, you know, supports in attacks or you bring in, you know, maybe one of the new centre-backs if Kabak was to stay and improve, maybe he goes in there. Um, right wing-back could maybe be, if it's not Trent, could it be like a, an Oxlade-Chamberlain or someone uh, who's, who's got plenty of pace? Obviously, got Robertson on the other side. Um, and then you, a, a really strong front three of uh, Mane, Jota, Salah, you know, Firmino, Firmino coming in there as well. It is interesting. It's a, uh, you know, when you when you kind of lay the team out like that, it's it's an interesting concept and it could maybe work. You know, it could be an option for for Liverpool, especially if they want to try new things, adjust the setup slightly. Um, I think we've seen with Chelsea how how strong they've been since adopting something like that on Tuchel. Uh, Obviously, philosophy is a little bit different with him compared to Klopp, but who knows? Maybe it could be somewhere where Liverpool evolve. I just think it's a really... I haven't decided where to stand on it, but I think it's a really interesting question. Yeah, Liverpool have never really been a, a back three team. 
Um, apart from the a brief period under Rodgers, uh, it's not it's not a formation Liverpool have really explored much. And I think from my perspective, I think uh, I wouldn't overly mind seeing it. But I'd like if if Liverpool were to do it, I'd like it to be really really attacking. Um, in terms of like you just mentioned there, like as your wing back, I'd like that to be like an ox. Um, and I'd like maybe a set, maybe a centre midfielder in in a centre back role and stuff. And I think in terms of Trent, I I don't like Trent as a wing back personally. I think he's been used there for England and stuff. And I think Robbo is much more suited to being a wing back because it's a lot more reliant. I think you become a lot more reliant on your your penetrative run and your energy and stuff like that. Whereas Trent. He's a lot more technical and he's a lot more useful when it comes to ball progression. So I think I actually think I'd use Trent as a right-sided centre-back in a back three and just let him move the ball forward um, by playing these line-breaking passes and stuff. So, yeah, in- interesting shout. I'm not sure we'll see it any time soon, simply because I think Klopp likes to get players in the box and the more players you've got in your defence, the less likely that is to happen, almost. But... Um, I think it'd be interesting to see what a Liverpool team would look like if, say, for example, Tuchel was to take charge for a few games and he was use a back three. It, it, it would look quite interesting. Um, mm. Well, yeah, I've Definitely. got a question from from Joe Walker. So he says, uh, Alisson's discrepancy between general shot-saving ability and his penalty-saving ability seems a bit mad. It's an interesting one. I've thought about it myself. I think if you, I think most Liverpool fans have probably thought about this one, um, but I think I think there is stuff in it. Like I think generally a penalty save, it is a lot more of just a, a coin flip. Um, penalties are generally wasted by expected goals, as not worth about zero point seven six xg. So penalties tend to be scored roughly seventy six percent of the time. So it's it's even less than a coin flip really, and I think. In real time and open play, um, you know, if you're saving a shot compared to if you're saving a penalty, you, I think your positioning comes in, comes into it a lot more in open play. Allison's position is really, really good in terms of altering his feet and stance based on where the ball is and stuff. Obviously, if you're facing a penalty, it's coming straight down the middle. It's just, it's a bit different, um, you know, in terms of staying on your feet and stuff, bossing a duel. It, all that becomes less important. All of Alisson's main qualities, you could argue. His ability to stay on his feet, his positioning, his ability to boss a duel. It all becomes a bit less important when he's saving a penalty. Um, so, yeah, I do think there's stuff in it. It's an interesting one. But it, I suppose it is quite a funny one that, you know, over the years, a, a top goalkeeper hasn't always translated into a top penalty stopper, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, although on that point, I'd love to know who who were considered really great shot stop their uh, penalty stoppers. You know, really good from penalty kicks, and and then those particular keepers that people might raise, uh, I'd love to actually crunch the numbers on on their penalties because I kind of feel like you use the term coin toss. All right, it's I said it's not it's not that kind of black and white fifty fifty, but. Um, you know, it's what am I trying to say? It's it's basically. It, I wonder if maybe just there's been one or two high-profile penalty saves where it's just kind of gone that keeper's way, and they build up a reputation as being quite strong 
from penalty yeah. kicks where Allison hasn't had that, you know, those one or two go his way. And if they did, would this then be an issue or something that was considered? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think a few keepers come to mind that, that are supposed to have above average penalty saving ability. I think Tim Krul comes to mind. Um, Pepe Reina had a reputation for it at Liverpool. I'm not mm. overly sure why. I was obviously a lot younger then, so I wasn't really paying as much attention in an analytical sense. But he had, he definitely had a reputation for it. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting little trait that I, I don't always I don't necessarily think a, a good goalkeeper makes a good penalty stopper. It's I think it is different skills. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I've got a question from Victor, no surname. I don't know if that was accidental or intentional, uh, Victor. There's been, there's been a few of them, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe it is. You know, maybe people aren't looking for the for the fame yeah. of the shout out, <laughs> which is fair enough. Um, this is more of a maybe, I guess, just opinion from me and you, Josh. But will Cater uh, and Oxlade Chamberlain ever have a career at Anfield at all, as they current as the currently injury prone? lack consistency due to their periodic performances and runs in the team. Uh, surely the club's patience is running out. Feels like that might just be a little bit of a vent uh, about the situation. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it is a tough one. I think for me, the more frustrating one is from Liverpool's perspective is uh, is Keita. Because I look at Oxley Chamberlain, I think, you know, he, he had a really bad injury that's kind of just in everything has been an aftermath of that. Um, his inability to kind of get back fit playing every week. I think it all boiled down to what happened there. Cater for me has the highest ceiling as a player. You know, he could he's someone who could really have a transformational impact really on the team who is playing week in, week out. It's clear why Liverpool wanted to sign him. And yet he just can't stay fit. And it's never huge, uh, obvious. It's not like a Van Dyke injury where you can totally understand why he's, he's out for so long. He just keeps keeps the seam, you know, breaking down with recurrent niggling injuries that he just can't seem to shake off. And as I said, because he's got, in my opinion, the higher ceiling, can bring more to the team. I think he's definitely the more the one that's more frustrating. And I don't know what you what you do specifically with him because he's clearly popular. I think Klopp and the and the staff will obviously value what he can bring to the team when fit. But you've had, I don't think there'll be people here now who maybe don't watch much football beyond Liverpool, and they'll have no idea what he what he can do really because he the, the glimpse of being few and far between and you know kind of what he was doing in Germany seems like a long time ago now. Uh, or Salzburg as well. So, yeah, that's a tough one. Oxley Chamberlain, I'm inclined to think maybe he'll move on soon, Josh. Uh, I don't know what you think. Just I know we were talking about him a little bit earlier, but um, yeah, I just struggle to see him ever getting a place back in the team because when he has come in, he just hasn't had a great impact. Yeah, I think the cases of both are a little bit different. I think a few a while back, not so long ago, actually, I actually thought the future of Liverpool's development rested with, with those two players, actually. I actually thought Liverpool, further down the line, could maybe go a bit more offensive in the midfield area or certainly have the potential to mix it up in the midfield area by, depending on the match scenario. 
uh, fielding Keita and Ox as the two number eights. Um, and I thought that was where things were going to go. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think in, in, in terms of Ox, I don't think he'll ever become more than what he currently is at Liverpool. I think any any ceiling he was going to reach at Liverpool, I think he's already reached. Specifically, I think around the time Liverpool were causing Manchester City real problems and stuff, Ox was really integral to the, the game plans back then. And he still can be integral every now and then to certain game plans. But I think in terms of playing every week and becoming a regular by just grabbing hold of a position and keeping it, I can't see Ox ever doing that, really. When the next season starts, he's going to be 28. Um, and I'm just, I just not sure that's going to happen. In terms of Keita, although it's incredibly frustrating, I still have faith that Liverpool will get a good, a good run out of this player. He's only recently, last month, turned 25. I think, in fact, no, hang on. He might have recently, last month, turned 26. But regardless, he's a player who... Yeah, 26 it was. Um, but he's a player who just has a really, really high ceiling and is a very Liverpool-type player. And I think all these injuries he's currently experiencing, I am far from an injury expert, but it could just be some form of period. It could just be a growth spurt, you know, whatever it might be. It could be anything. And there's been players in the past who have experienced periods like this before moving past it and then just becoming a regular every single week. Like, I think... I think he's been compared to Gundogan at times because he he was in and out a little bit when Klopp was at Dortmund. Um, and obviously now Gundogan plays virtually every week for, for Pep Guardiola. So in terms of Keita, I think there's still plenty of time and I wouldn't I wouldn't be that surprised if you was to say to me, you know, there's not, another two years have to pass before he even turns 28. So I wouldn't be surprised if by that point, as a 28-year-old, you know, 28, you're still in your peak really as a midfielder. If Case is playing every week at the age of 28, you know, when Henderson reaches age 32 or so. So, although it's frustrating with Naby and you'd like to see him on the pitch, I still think you've got, you've, you do have plenty of time with this player. You, you, there's no real rush in that. And, um, he's got a contract still till 2023. Maybe we can reassess, but I still think there's time with Keita, even though it's very annoying. I guess um, if the, sorry, I was going to just to add on that before we round it off. I guess if, uh, I guess if the team were really reliant on him, so you know he was he was a he was kind of the biggest earner. He was clearly the best midfielder, and the team was significantly worse without him. Say the way Villa are with with Grealish. Now I think there'd be maybe more of a want to sell him, free up those funds, and get a similar player who was more consistent on the pitch. He was going to play every week, but obviously he. He isn't. He isn't that player. He, he still kind of feels like the, oh, you know, the, almost like the forgotten man a little bit. That you get a little bit from a Liverpool point of view, you get excited about when, when you know he he's coming back to the team or he's going to be available for an up and coming game. Um. So yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what you said there. I think there's you can still be a little bit more patient with him. Put this way, if it was the two players that you, that the question was on, uh, I'd, you'd be selling off say Chamberlain and you'd be sticking with Cater for a little bit longer at least. Yeah, I think Keita's ceiling is probably too high for Liverpool to just accept defeat at the age of recently 26. I think it's Liverpool can still give this player more of a chance. And uh, even if he ends up just playing, you know, 1,500 minutes a season, that's still a solid, well, not a solid, but still an all right return for a player if you're getting that over the course of about five seasons. Um, so I've got a question from 
Christi, Christine Rowland or Rowland. Um, why is it they won't give Genie Wildham a new contract when he's played so well this season? Uh, we've talked about this a few times, to be honest, on the pod. It's a, it is a tricky one, largely because of his age and you know his, his contract and stuff. Liverpool signed him as a 25-year-old, I think. Got him on a deal whereby he was on, I think, around 75 grand a week. And it was a five-year deal. So Liverpool were well aware that at the end of that five-year deal, he will be 30. And then we can reassess him as he enters his 30s. You generally tend to be reluctant to give a 30-year-old player a wealthy contract because he's entering the stasis, which is usually when regression starts to happen. He might become a bit less available. He might slow. He might go a bit slower. His physical output might decline and things. Um, and because of what he's done at Liverpool and the player he's become, despite all of those things, you have to give him a pay rise. And he will naturally, in a way at least, block the path of whoever he, whoever's behind him. Say, for example, like Curtis Jones. I think in this case, though, I do think it's a tiny bit different simply because it's Wijnaldum. He does, he's the most physically perfect player Liverpool have had. I, I, I think he, he's so available every week, never suffers from any kind of knock. Um, mobile enough to get up and down the pitch and stuff. Was playing the game from a very, very early age. So I'm not sure his physical decline will be that drastic. In addition to that, he's clearly... A, a big player in the squad, a leader and stuff. I do think he'll want a pay rise, and I think it'll be fairly significant. I think he'll want probably, you know, an added 50 grand on top of what he's currently getting a week, maybe. That's a complete guess. But it's, it is a tricky one because of his age. I can understand Liverpool putting a bit of a cap on it. But if, if it's Liverpool just straight up choosing not to offer this player a new deal and maybe looking towards a kind of Clock 2.0 in terms of a new squad, a new a new rebuild, and why now them leaving is central to that. I, I do think there's an element of risk attached to that, and I do think you can you can kind of look back maybe at this one in like a year's time and and regret what you did because I think specifically this season if we had if we didn't have why Liverpool would have struggled even more than he couldn't have. Yeah, yeah, there's just. You touched on it, but there's a lot of moving parts with these deals. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. It's not just a case of, you know, it, he's a good player. He's still performing at a high level. Let's 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 keep him uh, because, yeah, you have to think more long term. I mean, I, 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 I was working on a piece this morning, and it reminded me of uh, how Manchester United offered Nemanja Matic a three-year deal. Uh, I think it might have been in December as a reward for playing well. Now, I think Wijnaldum is much better than Matic. Uh, but that already looks like an error on their part because, you know, he's clearly not... Uh, he looked like he really struggled against Leicester and he's, um, you know, he's going to be on the books for a while, probably on a lot of money. And that's obviously something Liverpool are looking to avoid. You know, whilst Wijnaldum looks really good now, he is at the stage in his career where a drop-off and quite a significant one in terms of ability could just happen without warning really um, and at that stage you don't really want to be left with paying a lot of money and from Wijnaldum's point of view he's obviously he's probably looking for his one big final contract Barcelona obviously seem keen 
know, Cumin's there. He likes him. I, I don't have the national team, so I think uh, I think he's probably looking, thinking, look, I'm really happy at Liverpool, but I can go to another super club in Barcelona. Um, I can get paid a lot of money to play there. Um, probably my biggest payday now before that retire really so you can kind of see why he's he's weighing up leaving as well um, so yeah it's quite a messy one yeah yeah it is one thing I will say on this as well just to add I do think Klopp is generally because of Klopp's style of play and his demands and stuff like that I do think he's generally a manager that needs players in the peak and players who are quite young and stuff to just to do the run side of things um, and not that Wijnaldum can't do that but the older Liverpool squad gets, the more in conflict it will become with Klopp's general approach. So, you know, that obviously has to be considered. And if Liverpool think they can go and get a more youthful version of Wijnaldum, then, you know, that's going to be the approach mm-hmm. that'll take. But as I said, there's an element of risk attached to it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, on to this is two questions. Um, and it's from Avnish Jamas. Uh, Jazzmat, I should say. Avnish Jazzmat. Um, hi, I have two questions if possible. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> uh, the first is, what's the stats regarding Liverpool coming from behind to either win or draw a game this season? Brackets home or away. Uh, home and away, sorry. And he just goes on to say, obviously, the recent home results paint a weird picture, but interesting to know how this compares to away results. So I have had a look. This is a some prep I actually did do. Um, and at home this season, Liverpool have conceded the opening goal in nine of their 15 home matches, which is really high, by the way. You know, I, I, I didn't bring it up. Uh, I haven't had a look of last season, but it was nothing like that. So conceded nine times, sorry, conceded the first goal, nine of 15 matches uh, of those nine. One, three, drew none, lost six. Um, which isn't great. Uh, it's quite horrible for the reigning champion. Like, yeah, yeah, it really is. No, there's no two ways to get around it. Um, away from home, this is interesting. Liverpool have actually only conceded the first goal in on three or fourteen away matches. Um, so you know, significantly less. But uh, none of those three ended up being victories. There was one draw and two defeats. So, you know, what what that really is, as a reminder, is how important the first goal is. Uh, there's, there's quite a lot of football studies that have kind of concluded that if, if the, the team who score first tend to win the match around 70% of the time. And I, I'd heard this a lot, but, you know, I'd never looked into myself until recently. So I'd look at the Premier League last year and sure enough, it was about 69%. Um, when the team scored first, they went on to win the match. So, you know, the big, the first goal is huge. It's all well and good being able to have it in your locker to come back from going behind. It's nice to have, but um, your task in terms of winning the game becomes significantly tougher if you concede first. So if you think that Liverpool conceded in first in 60%, of their home league matches this season, um, you know it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot, and it does explain in some ways why they've uh, they've struggled the way they have. Um, oh, someone's just oh, so our producer just said the pool and conceded first three times in Anfield last season, 
and they came back to win all three. Um, yeah, and they only conceded first in five away matches last season, which is uh, interesting. Second part of the question, less less uh, numbers to rely on here. Might just be a kind of something like me and Josh, me and Josh answer. But the second question is re- related to overlaps. Uh, not sure if you guys have covered it in early episodes, but this season it seems that there's a, a distinct lack of overlapping runs uh, on the wing, especially in the attacking third. There are times when Trent and Robbo have the ball, but there's no wingers pulling defenders out to the byline or to the corner, giving them the opportunity to cut in uh, or open play to swing in across. Would like to know your thoughts. Um, so this may be the case. It's not something I, I remember standing out specifically. I, I, a couple of times I thought it looked a little bit uh, static out in the wide areas, but it does feel like Liverpool, certainly since the turn of the year, have faced a lot of back fives. Um, and one of the benefits for the opposition is it restricts space in the wide areas and it makes it really difficult to get those kind of, you know, 2v1 overloads with with, with overlapping runs and things. And, you know, because there's, there's simply not the same space to attack. So... I think that could maybe be one of the reasons why. Uh, but I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Josh. Um, potentially the obviously the the vulnerability at centre back. Um, I think maybe Klopp or Linders, one of them, maybe referenced about some kind of change midway through the season. Just as in, you know, maybe not committing as many men forward because you haven't got defenders who are any longer as good one v one. So maybe you have to keep an additional man behind the ball. You have to focus on uh, keeping counter attacks quiet a little bit more, and that that results in one less overlap maybe from from a Trent or from a Robbo, and as a result, Liverpool getting behind a bit less and stuff. So yeah, it's all interrelated, and I'd be inclined to look towards the the defensive security that Klopp obviously wants without Van Dijk and, and Gomez and Matip as a reason for. For the two fullbacks not coming in as much, maybe. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. So I've got a question from Jack Pennell. He says it's not super red related, but given that Brighton have been so poor at finishing recently, I have wondered about the usefulness of XG at less elite levels of football. How far down the pyramid would you have to go? For XG to stop being of use as a metric. Interesting question, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. Difficult to answer. <laughs> nah. I think in terms of XG, yeah, it's it's just a performance indicator, as I've said on previous episodes. Obviously, the lower that you go, one one issue is the the lower that you go down the pyramid, the worse the quality of data tends to become. Um, and obviously, if you're talking about Sunday League, there's no there's no data collection getting taken there. So you're not going. And if there was any data collection, it's going to be absolutely bang average. The data provider we use for expected goals considers, you know, the position of the goalkeeper, the position of maybe defenders in between the ball and the goal. A lot of models aren't that sophisticated, so they, so they don't they don't consider that sort of stuff. Basic models won't and the expected goals of a certain shot might be a lot higher a lot lower than it actually is um but in terms of how low 
you know, how low you can go in terms of the quality of the shooter. I just think, you know, the, the lower that you go, the more football kind of descends into just a mad battle in the middle of the pitch, almost. And I think, you know, one of the qualities of expected goals is it it identifies who's had the better of the performance in terms of shots, really. So if I, if, I, if my team has taken 20 shots and Dave's team has taken 10, and mine are from better locations and stuff like that, then I'm probably going to win most games. But I think in, in a Sunday league game, you know, 11 aside on some random pitch or whatever, as I said, the match kind of descends into something a bit different. And no team really ends up dominating really as much. And a lot of the shots tend to originate from outside the box. So, yeah, that's if you want to answer, Dave. Any thoughts on that one? Um, yeah, I still think, I mean, it's obviously dependent on the models, but I still think there's a there's a value to it because at the end of the day, obviously XG is about, predominantly, it's about shot location, isn't it? Um, and it'll be able to capture if, you, if one team is created um, you know, but, go on, go. you can say the only issue with that though. Say for example, this is obviously a really bad example, probably. But say for example, our, our game a few weeks back with the Echo, the eleven side. Mm. If you look at the shot map in that game, although we ended up winning by a fair amount, most of our shots came from what you'd probably label as bad locations, wouldn't they? Wouldn't you say that's the case? In a lot of Sunday league games, that the the general shot locations are just worse because when when someone gets even in the final third, relatively central areas, they just kind of shoot. <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak for Sunday league. I think Sunday league is Sunday league. It is what it is. Obviously, I I, I do analysis work at at um, a Northern Premier League side, so that's the league below the conference. Um, and I'll be I'm their first team analysis from, from next season. So I've been looking at like XG using XG at that level and I've come across a you know, I've got a really basic model that you can use. And I do see a value in looking at the locations of, of where the shots come from to capture how you've kind of performed from an attacking point of view. And in what I will say, Josh, in that level there is there is there is still really Nice attacking sequences and good sh- shots created. Now I don't know if uh, if this person is talking about League Two, League One that's, kind of stuff. That's what I was going to say. Like I, I don't yeah. know how low he's indicating here. I'm obviously going really low at Sunday League, but yeah, know, if, you're going, if you're going conference level, it's a little bit higher, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say because there's still really good players at that level. Um, you know, there's the, there is like you know kind of players who who, who definitely. Shine if they, if they were playing with us. Um, I feel like our XG would have been really good in that echo game, by the way. I feel like we did create a few close to goal, but look, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they're just focusing more on the finishing side of things, but um, I think it just it, it captures kind of where you've almost created your shots from, haven't you? Where, where your shooting opportunities have come from, and that still indicates some form of who's been more more dominant on the day, who's created better chances closer to goal. So I definitely still think there's there's value to it. Yeah. Next question. Uh, where am I up to? Oof, Josh, got a anonymous again. You know, no name. Uh, I don't know, maybe people feel like they're, they're sprinkling on uh, or, or touching on unsteady ground. I don't want to get named, but uh, should Bobby continue to be a guaranteed starter? Or should he become the fourth forward? Um, he then puts in brackets, or she. 
he might be a little bit too new, unique uh, to be a four four a fourth forward. Um, but is the is the way to go? Sadio, Jota, and Salah. Um, you know, it's I haven't got a lot to say on this except probably for me, yeah. You know, I think Mane still phenomenal. Salah, you know, Salah, Salah, phenomenal. Uh, Jota's just been brilliant since he's coming. You know, really clinical. I think he's probably benefiting from a little bit of a purple patch in front of goal as well. But um, I think he can. Jota can do a lot of what Firmino does, but obviously have an ability to finish as well. So, um, Josh, for me, I would probably say that's the right order, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably the same. I think if you were to look at Liverpool's best 11, obviously when everyone's fit, the back four obviously play. Salah plays, Mane plays, Jota plays, Fabinho plays, and one of the eights obviously plays. So, your selection of Firmino in the starting eleven is kind of in direct competition between it's either Firmino or a third midfielder. So Firmino is in competition with say Curtis Jones or Thiago or Wijnaldum, and I think the midfielders probably offer more on the pitch of late than Firmino does. So mm. yeah, I think he's fell down a little bit there to be honest. Uh, so I've been asked by Andy Bevan, what do you think would be the biggest lesson learned? in terms of on-field play that will help Liverpool in next season's campaign? Difficult ones to answer, but I think just on the basic side, one thing I think I've picked up on more than ever before is that it, all that matters really in football is kind of what happens in both penalty boxes. Um, it, it's all that matters. I think, funnily enough, I think Carragher was doing a piece on Monday Night Football a few weeks back on David Moyes and what he's done at West Ham. And that was something that he referenced as in Moyes' approach to football. It's kind of only the two penalty boxes matter. And everything in between is just noise. And I think Liverpool have been much their dominant selves since Christmas. But in both boxes have been bad and results have seriously suffered. So, you know, I think if you're going to overperform in one box and, under- and make sure you- the opponents don't overperform in the other box... You'll do a lot towards guiding results, and you've only got to look at, you know, the underperforming and overperforming teams in the Premier League, and those that are overperforming their expected numbers just generally tend to be doing good, and those that are underperforming are, are placing low in the division. So, really basic point, but at the end of the day, the output in both penalty boxes is is what matters most. I think. I think that's that's one big lesson that's been. Been there probably, even though it's 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 kind of basic common knowledge in a way. Yeah, yeah. There's this, there is this kind of old school manager saying, isn't it, that you know the game's won in both boxes, uh, and I think people can be dismissive of that, but you've hit the nail on the head. It is, it is true. At the end of the day, for all what we talk about, that's their facts. Um, I feel like I answered something similar last week. Uh, hopefully, it wasn't the exact same question. If it, if it did, I apologise. But uh, Fergus Keogh asks, uh, Hi, I have the impression that Genie never gives the ball away, but Thiago is very wasteful in possession. Do the numbers back this up? Um, no, and I, I probably wouldn't call it uh, wasteful as such. I think the reality is, you know, Thiago's game is he, he tries more, doesn't he, in possession? He's, he, I think 
Genie's game is really risk averse, whereas Thiago takes plenty of plenty of risks to try and make things happen. You know, more penetrative balls, balls into the attack and third and things. Um, but even despite that, past success rate this re- season is Genie Wijnaldum ninety four percent, very high. Um, Thiago eighty nine percent. So. Yeah, it's not that he's he's really wasteful. He is just trying a little bit more. Um, and when you do that, you, you, your past success rate is going to take a hit, which is why you probably won't hear me and Josh ever really obsessing over past success rates because there's normally a deeper story in there. Um, and it normally indicates things like you know, behaviours on the ball, like trying to be really low. Bruno Fernandez is he'll be is will be really low. You know, it's it's more dependent on how you play. Um that impact past success rates. So I've been asked a question along the lines of wine albums well. Someone says someone. He's actually left his name, so I better say uh, <laughs> Dan Gregory is he's left he's left a, a question along the lines of Sander Berg and whether that Sheffield United man can replace Wijnaldum. Um what the data says and stuff. So, yeah, in, in terms of this one, good player, um, interesting player. Klopp's actually described him as a very interesting player. Those were exact, his exact words when he was playing in Belgium. Um, certainly beneficial on the physical side. I think he's about six foot three. Good on the ball. Um, can get forward and stuff like that. Composure, threat from set pieces. My only question really would be, a, and he's obviously getting relegated, so he should be available for, for the reduced price. My only question would be a quite a basic one and that that is just is he is he good enough? You know, is he, is he Liverpool level quality? Because if if you're not already Liverpool level quality when Liverpool buy you, you have to at least have the potential to reach that level. And although he's quite clearly for me Premier League level, that Liverpool level is 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 a different story for me. I think it I've mm. said plenty of times Liverpool needs to behave like a Top of the food chain type club, we should only be signing players who have got world class ability or potential. Uh, Sander Berg again comfortably Premier League level player, but there's just that little question for me as to whether he's actually good enough for Liverpool while being clearly good enough for a team like say, I don't know Brighton, Fulham. You know, good signs, but Liverpool need to be aiming for Champions League quality and. There's a question mark there as to whether Sander Berg's that. I think he's currently... How old is he, Dave? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, is he about 23, I think? Uh, let me just check. Uh, yeah, 23, yeah. Yeah, so still got maybe two years on his side before Liverpool, before he has to move to a Liverpool team. But yeah, he's one, one way of keeping an eye on, but I'm not entirely certain on that. Yeah. A bit like uh, Kamara to stop the show, wasn't it? Oh, good, good yeah. player. Or maybe yeah. not Liverpool. Do you want to? Um, do you want? I think you've got a little bit more, a few more questions in the bank. If you want to, if you want to take yeah, okay. on another one. Um, I've got another one. Alan question. <laughs> uh, yeah, Matt so he says, with Genie leaving, who in Europe has the closest stats replicating what he does for the Reds? Who Liverpool could feasibly buy? Um, so. I had a quick look. This is not particularly thought of, but I just looked at the, the key department that Wijnaldum ticks for Liverpool and just filtered out you know, the, the players who don't apply and looked at the players who do. 
And I've just listed five who just vaguely, this is very vague, but, you know, they just vaguely fit the bill, if you like, of a, of a wine album role. Um, probably the most compatible was Adrian Rabio at Juventus. Uh, was at PSG, supposed to be a Liverpool fan, actually, I think, or he's certainly big on Anfield and stuff like that. Um, there's also meant to be a few little problems with his agents or something like that, or personality traits or something that... It's his mom, isn't it, his agents? Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. needs to be able to deal with or something. Um, Wilfred and Deary is another, but obviously he can't play as an ex, he's a six. Um, I think Zambo and Gisa at Fulham is comparable. And Golo Kante, obviously, I think is a little bit comparable. And uh, Sumari over in League One, who's been linked with Leicester City, I think. I think he's got comparable traits. Um, but generally, I think Thiago was quite comparable before Liverpool bought him. So, I've said a few times, I think Thiago was the wild and the policeman. And, uh, you know, we will see, we will end up seeing him right or not there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Philip says, what's your thoughts on concept from Villa? I've been watching him this season and he's a big, big compliment this. He's been a Rolls Royce of a defender. Uh, I feel like him and Van Dijk could be colossal together. Um, I mean, he's been a, he's been a treat for many FPL owners. Uh, but yeah, you know, I can, I can see the appeal. Um, I, you know, one thing I'm not sure of though, actually how old he is. Um, let me just check. Um, twenty-three. Yeah, so you know, still young. Uh, you know, decent size, six foot. I did notice really good in defensive duels, upwards of seventy-five percent success rate uh, this season. Not remarkable in the air, really. Um, which is something you know you 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 reference Van Dyke there. You know, Van Dyke's a beast in the air. Uh, he hasn't been so, so much this. He reminds me a lot of uh, of Joe Gomez, you know. A lot in terms of his strengths, his weaknesses. They, they even both came through at Charlton. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very similar, I think. Yeah. Well, I was about to say, but well, I'll just finish off and then I'll I'll, I'll lead on to that. Um, yeah, I was about to say, I just don't know whether he's a Liverpool defender because um, I just, I, I think obviously Villa play a little bit different. But I was about to say, I'm just not sure if he's, if you think of what you'd have to pay to get him. Um, from Villa, I'm just not sure he'd be a substantially enough improvement on on Gomez to to basically make that move. If you get me, like I don't think it'd be worthwhile. It feels like you've already got an equivalent in place with Gomez. So yeah, good player, really good season. But uh, in terms of it actually happening, uh, I, I don't know if it, if it ever was. Uh, but then you know, you might maybe he'll develop into. It. Into something more than enough to be like, no, he's he's a substantial uh, upgrade. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Up and asked by Charles Lloyd, what striker in Europe's top five leagues statistically fits this current Liverpool side best? Someone who statistically has comparable numbers to Bobby Firmino between 2017 and 2019. I think on that one, you know, it remains to be seen whether Liverpool will want another Firmino type. You know, I think Klopp worked with Firmino because it's what he had when he came in. Klopp didn't go and buy Firmino, although it could have been pre-planned in that way. Um, but Firmino's quite an unorthodox forward. And I think a, a, a sensible man, sensible striker, if you like, that fitted that bill, I thought was Kai Havertz. He's obviously gone to Chelsea. 
And if Liverpool go down a different route by getting, you know, more of a striker in a traditional nine, let's say. Obviously, you've got to look beyond Erling Haaland. Sadly, probably unavailable uh, for Liverpool. But, you know, you never know, I suppose. But I've mentioned a few times, Andre Silva looks looks good. Looks like he's had a good season. Um, Dave's mentioned Alexander Isaac, I think is it, it is, at Real mm-hmm. Sociedad. Um, Jonathan David's been shouted by David as well on, on previous times. Um, he's currently at Lille. Liverpool have been supposedly interested in him in the past, and I think he likes to do a bit of pressing game and stuff. But yeah, it just depends. It'd be interesting to see whether Liverpool actually targets a, a proper striker or if Klopp sticks with the whole forward, you know, type vibe whereby it's kind of just very fluid. Um, mm-hmm. I'll go with another question, Dave, because as you said, I think I've got a few more than you. Yeah. Um, Mark Brotherston says, does the evolution of this side mean um, is replacing ageing players with similar younger versions? Or should we be looking to change the style slash system based on being found out this season? Um, I think for me, I would kind of let them all play together rather than replacing anyone. Um, so, say for example, if this summer Liverpool get in, let's you know completely let's say Rafinha, rather than getting in Rafinha and straight up selling Firmino or Salah or whatever, I think you benefit in the meantime from letting them all play together and letting the transition be a bit more seamless. Say, for example, Liverpool knew Coutinho was going to get sold the summer before that. They got Salah in for a six-month period. Salah, Coutinho, Mane and Firmino all played together. Um, and I think this year as well, um, I think Thiago was the Wijnaldum replacement. So you get Thiago in a year early and they play together for a year. So I think that's that's kind of how I'd do it. I think you do want to end up with a, a little bit of a change in style slash system. But I don't think you do it radically over the course of one summer. I like a seamless seamless transition over a period. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of that. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I feel a bit bad on this one, but Frank Football, who I like, yeah, I think I follow him on Twitter, actually. Um He's asked a really precise question. Uh, which three players are the least press resistant in the league and which three are the best? Uh, sorry, Frank, I'll have to come back to you on that one, mate, because it's uh, it's definitely going to need a deeper dive. Um, you know, Players like Rodri at City, I think Southampton's Romero looks, you know, seems to do quite well in terms of getting passes off while being uh, pressed. But yeah, it's really hard to just answer that one, you know, uh, off cuff, I guess. Uh, so maybe I'll I'll look into it. If it becomes a piece, I'll I'll, I'll drop you the DM and answer that one. Or unless anyone jumps out for you, Josh, uh, who you think particularly is and why Aldum actually is quite good from a Liverpool perspective. Yeah, players off the top of my head come to mind. Like uh, I think Mateo Kovacic is very press resistant. Mm. Uh, obviously, Tangley and Dombele at Spurs. One of the most press resistant players I've ever seen was Moussa Dembele at Spurs. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable player. Um, and the least press resistant, that's an interesting one. Mm. Players who collapse when they're pressed. Um, and I'm going to have to have a think about that, you know, because there's, there's yeah, probably, some, probably some blatant ones that I'm, that I'm not thinking about. Um, 
but you, it's hard to tell because those players just tend to just absolutely put the ball in the stands. Yeah, I know because it's uh, it's it's not worth it. It's not <laughs> our Arsenal, our Arsenal fan uh, producer said Granik Xhaka. So I, I can see, I can see why he say, says this because weirdly Jorginho bumps into me head because he got caught out a few times in the early days, but he's actually not, uh, not very. Uh, what's the term? He, he isn't bad in that department because obviously he get, he's under a lot of pressure when he when he plays at Chelsea and he, he tends to evade it quite well. But I think if they make one or two high high profile mistakes, it sticks in your mind. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. Um. So I'll go on to a question from Victor. Just doesn't even say a name. Uh, he says, "Is there a need for the club to address Mane's form?" Um, I think he's been bad of late, at least. I think his finishing, but also his decision making, has been been not great. Um, but it's one of them that I think you just have to kind of persist with. I'm not sure if, if there's any reasons behind that. Again, scene. I'm not sure if he's tired. Um. But I don't think uh, it depends what you mean by address, I suppose. Um I do think Klopp's probably spoken to him and stuff, but it's a difficult one where he's doing about one of them. You just gotta persist with and just gotta hope he comes out to the side. And he also asks, um, realistically speaking, we cannot afford Kylian Mbappe or Erling Haaland. Don't you think we'd be better getting someone like Grealish? Um I think in terms of Grealish this season, I will be, I will be honest, he's, uh, he's changed my mind on him this season. This season, I think this has been brilliant. Um, but I'm not sure he's a Liverpool type. I am not. I can't even really express why, because I do think he does a bit of the pressing side and stuff. But I think he's just a bit of a ball magnet, a bit like Coutinho was. And Klopp, one of the perks of getting rid of Coutinho was, was getting rid of that predictable trait whereby you kind of run all your attacks through one player. And I think Grealish maybe has a bit of a tendency to to have a big slice of the attack and pie, maybe. Um, and he's obviously be ridiculously expensive. Like I don't even oh. think he's than Harlan. Well, that's actually why I was laughing when we first said it, because I thought, you know, you've you've talked about two really expensive transfers, but then you've you've included a third who'd, who'd be right up there. Like I, I don't even know what he'd be about. What easily ninety million? I think easy. Yeah, I think you're pushing a hundred. Personally, mm. I think he. Yeah, I can't remember when his last deal was signed, but I don't think it was that long ago. It was in the summer. Yeah. Uh, so all, I think they've done that just to protect their position to get a fortune in if uh, if he does end up going. Yeah. Um, next question, Dave. Yeah, and this is actually my last, um, which is right. probably a good sign because we're we're getting close to the end. But uh, Bobby Reggie. Says, what do you make of uh, Yusuf uh, Esnery? Um, of, of that's obviously Seville. Um, what do you make of his numbers, and do you think he'd be a good signing for us as centre forward? Now, I must admit, I've only watched him a handful of times in the Champions League. Um, we, you, sometimes you, you might try and pretend that you watch every play in Europe, but you don't, and I haven't. I haven't. I haven't been asked to write about him, so I haven't scouted him in detail. Um, but when I've when I've watched him, he looks you know he looks really good. Obviously, a good age, twenty three. I had a quick glance at his numbers before we come on. Um, he's averaging 0.75 goals per ninety this season. Um, he's outperforming his xG in that, which is a uh, just over 0.5 per ninety. 
Um, he takes two points, six one shots per ninety this season, which isn't bad actually because that indicates to me that there's not a huge reliance on on volume. You know, it doesn't need a ton of shots to get to get the goal return he's been getting. Um, he did underperform a little bit last year uh, against his XG, which you know says that maybe he's just he's running hot this season. But overall, an interesting player, and um, you know, as I say, I need I need to watch him more, but in terms of suitability for Liverpool, but there's a, there's there's obvious reasons why he's um, he's getting a lot of uh, attention at the moment. I've been asked by Stephen Kinsella. What do the numbers look like for duels and possession between Jota and Firmino playing as a nine? Jota is performing Firmino's role better this season. So I'll just basic look at the numbers. It looks like Jota is pressing more, surprisingly. Um, Firmino winning a higher percentage of his tackles. Firmino keeping the ball marginally more often. And Firmino also... Slightly more creative in terms of generating shots for his teammates and stuff. But just finishing is, is far better. I think Firmino's underperforming as expected goals by about five goals, maybe. Might, might be more. Whereas Jota's overperforming, I think, by around three. So, by having Jota in your team compared to Firmino, based on exactly the same shots, you could argue Jota bags yeah, eight goals more based on his finishing compared to Firmino's, which is interesting. Um, and I've just checked, Dave, the actual sheet that we use to collect all the questions, just to see if any questions were submitted late. And we better answer this one, because he, he messages us fairly frequently, regularly listeners to the show, Tom Stewart, Dave. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Stewie. Stewie, good lad. Yeah, the reason we didn't get to it last week and the reason we've nearly missed it this week is because it looks like you've entered it quite late. Um into the last Thursday, but he says, um, I'm always arguing with my mates after Liverpool lose or draw about Wijnaldum and his purpose to the team. So apart from the obvious, what would you say his main purposes are? And what can I tell the lads to shut them up? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's an interesting player. He's, I think anyone who's, who's kind of judging Wijnaldum according to uh, goals and assists in particular is is doing him a disservice because you've got to ask yourself, is he, you know, as a part of that unit, is that what Ryan Allen's responsible for? Is that an expectation on his shoulders? And I think sometimes it is an expectation on his shoulders. And whenever it is, he actually pops up with goals. Um, but I think most of the time, because of the number of attackers in Liverpool's first 11, like if you think of Liverpool's best 11, you arguably have the front three and Robbo and Trent, and probably Henderson, who have more attacking roles than him, if you like. You can't just have everyone attacking, because then everyone would be ahead of the ball. So Wijnaldum's kind of, he's kind of that figure who understands where the ball is, understands locations, and tries to largely let his teammates do the attacking by staying behind the ball. Um, Gundogan, is, I think, is similar for City. And only recently has his role changed because Guardiola kind of hasn't really had a striker. So he's instructed Gundogan, right, you, you now have a, a greater responsibility to get goals. And then, shock, before too long, Gundogan starts scoring every other game um, because it becomes a responsibility. It becomes an instruction to get into the box. 
So as I said, whenever Wayne Alden's responsible for that, he tends to deliver it. But more often than not, because there's just so many attackers in Liverpool's team, he does the dirty work really and, and lets them provide provides them with a platform to attack. Um and if you, you just could look at what is what he does for Holland, you know, at Holland again there's not as many attackers in the Holland team compared to Liverpool. There's more of a responsibility on Wayne Alden to score. So he goes and does it. But again, you know, the situation changes Liverpool, so he does a bit more of the the stuff that doesn't take much of the spotlight. Yeah, um, yeah just uh, just quickly on that before we wrap up, I was going to say, you know, I think people are guilty of, some people are guilty of saying, well, you know, Liverpool play three midfielders and this midfielder is really good at, you know, I don't know, scoring goals or assists. This one isn't. Uh, so he, he's, he's a bad player. But, You've just got to remember that just because the you know these players are bracketed as as midfielders, it doesn't mean the roles are the same. You know they're there to do completely different things, and and Wayne Aldum's there as as you said, Josh, to to do the dirty work. He doesn't get the headlines; he does everything else. So um, the difference with him though is you know you only have to point into games when he has been asked to do that, or when he is with the national team, and he proves he can do it. So he's not incapable; he's just clearly. Being shackled by the system. Yeah, we have we have gone over here a little bit, but I can see two two remaining questions really. I think there's still a few more actually, but I'm going to uh, we we might not be able to get to them. But these, these last two, I'm going to just do really quickly because we've gone over it anyway. So uh, if the production team are fuming, apologies. Um, <laughs> but I'm just going to do these two last questions. So really basic one day first. What what should we do with Nat Phillips when the season ends? Should we sell? While the value is high, or keep? Uh, oh, you ask me. I, I think it totally depends what um, what they're doing elsewhere. You know, if they say if you're bringing in Kabak or something and sell them, yeah. Uh, I'll be honest. Actually, I'm probably inclined to sell. Yeah, I'd sell. Similar yeah. to Brewster, I think. You know, when these players, when the stock's high, you've got to get rid because he's not going to get an opportunity to showcase himself like this again, and his value's going to diminish while he's on the bench. So. You take your money there. And the last question, very tactical question. Um, it's from Gopi, uh, and there's no surname. Um, he says, most teams, Chelsea, Pep City, Klopp's Liverpool, attack through 2-3-5 in the last few seasons. But I am noticing little differences in how both Liverpool and City attack this season. It looks more hybrid. Fullbacks provide the width before. Now Salah is doing that. Um, how Trent's role has changed, similar to Cancelo and Walker, you know all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, nice, nice question. I think it just depends on on the players you've got. You know, you you, you can't just start telling, um, let's say Trent to start playing like Kyle Walker because he he, he doesn't really have the same skill set. Kyle Walker is obviously much more of a runner. Trent is a bit more of a passer. And I think Cancelo was a bit more of a passer as well, but I just think generally you you, you want to devise a strategy, devise a system whereby you're letting players do what they're good at, essentially. Um, hence, you know, Liverpool playing the system against Sheffield United a few weeks back at Bramall Lane, whereby the system allowed kind of Trent and Thiago to take up deeper positions, whereas Robbo joined the the front five. It is what it was because Robbo was much more of a penetrative player who can threaten him behind. So yeah, it's it's just about 
imposing that threat and offering the similar dynamics in terms of five attackers and keeping enough players behind the ball to guard against counter attacks, but while also ensuring each player is in a role that's that's suitable to what he's good at, really. Mm. Yeah, I haven't got much to add to that at all, uh, and I'm also conscious of the time. <laughs> yeah, this might be a record this one, but we'll round up there anyway. If we didn't yeah. get to your question, big apologies, but we did get a lot, and. Uh, yeah, we've dedicated over two hours to it there and still haven't managed to get through. So mm-hmm. keep tuning in and be sure to take advantage of the next Q&A next time. We'll, we'll make sure we get to your question. Uh, thanks for the nice messages that, you've, that have been sent in alongside the questions as well. And Dave, thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers, everyone. And we will be back next week with possibly a different type of episode, but if not, a look ahead to Arsenal and Real Madrid. Uh, so see you then. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.